the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Who's going to Sturgis? Believe me, there are times when I wish I was headed there. Sturgis, by the way, is in western South Dakota. And they have a motorcycle rally there every year. And if you're interested in going, uh, you still have time to get there. It goes from August 7th, which is uh, this Friday, day after tomorrow, until August 16th. Now, they're only expecting 250,000 people to go through there this year which is about half of what they normally get, uh, a COVID-19 issue, obviously. is keeping the numbers down. But uh, while lots of things in lots of states have been canceled, the rally in Sturgis is still on, and that's because they have a governor who's a superstar. Her name is Christy Noam. She didn't lock down the state. She didn't shut down the schools. She was uh, on the Laurel in- Laura Ingram show last night on Fox and although uh, you wouldn't think she would have to explain this to anybody, especially uh, someone smart enough to be the governor of a state, but she did explain why one size fits all is not the way to go. That's the challenge here, is that our state is so diverse. We have very urban areas, but we also have very rural areas. And a blanket approach doesn't make sense for the entire state of South Dakota. It doesn't make sense for this entire country. And that's why we need local leaders to trust people in their communities to make the decisions that work best for them. And we also need them to be optimistic, Laura. I mean, this this negativity that we hear from leaders and doctors about how terrible the situation is in our country, in a good spot. We are driving down our death rates. The virus is moving across the country, but we're taking care of people. They're getting the resources. The administration has helped governors respond to their people. I, I worry about these kids that turn on the news and hear their parents talking about being scared and hear news anchors talking about being worried and doctors. Uh, we wonder why our kids are struggling with anxiety. Let's be um, optimistic. Yeah, let's be optimistic. Kind of hard to be optimistic in a state like Pennsylvania where everything is shut down. But we're going to find out what it is like in uh, South Dakota when we come back. I'm going to talk to a real live South Dakotan. I think that's what you call him, people who live in South Dakota. He also happens to be a guy who works in radio. He's the news director at KWAT in Watertown, South Dakota. We're going to find out what it's all about out there in just a minute. Stick around. We're all thinking a lot more about staying safe these days. Windows R Us Pittsburgh is no different. This is John Steigerwald. When it comes to working around your home, Windows R Us remains committed to the safety of you and your family. For roofs, gutters, and downspouts, siding, and, of course, windows, Windows R Us Pittsburgh can answer the call. With over 50 years of home remodeling experience, Windows R Us has earned its reputation as the area's premier exterior replacement company. And all work will be done in strict compliance with the government's social distancing guidelines. If you've had damage, you may be eligible for free repair or replacement. Visit WindowsRUsPittsburgh.com for a free inspection from one of their highly trained appraisers. You'll love their no-pressure approach, no hidden fees, and one of the fastest turnaround times in the industry. From a company that will never skip town when it comes to honoring their warranty, why pay double? Trust the area's premier exterior replacement company. That's WindowsRUsPittsburgh.com. WindowsRUsPittsburgh.com. For more than 20 years, investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney has traveled across the globe in search of patterns of evidence to support some of the Old Testament's most miraculous events. Now, with the Red Sea Miracle Part 2, journey to Egypt and beyond as Tim interviews some of the world's foremost experts to discover the truth. Is there evidence of how and where the host of Israelites could have traveled as recorded in the Bible? Is there evidence of the Egyptian army's demise in the Red Sea? 
If you've seen the first part of this investigation of the Red Sea Miracle, you won't want to miss the continuation. The results of his pursuits are faith-affirming and fascinating. You must see Patterns of Evidence, The Red Sea Miracle Part 2. To see this powerful documentary and others in the series, go to SalemNow.com and use the promo code Pittsburgh for 20% off. That's SalemNow.com, promo code Pittsburgh. We're Diamond and Silk, and we have a new book coming out called Uprising. The Awakening of Diamond and Silk. No one we grew up with could have dreamed of what we have been able to accomplish. Our mother was born in poverty to share property. She was living the American nightmare. So for us, the American dream meant not only the freedom to find love and follow our faith. Freedom meant not letting anyone else define who we are, what we can do, or who we should vote for. In Uprising, we talk about the world we grew up in. And what led us to rebel against that world? And how rebellion led us to speak out on politics and reach millions of viewers and how you can reach others too. You've seen us and you've heard us. Now read all about us in Uprising. Uprising by Diamond and Silk, coming August 18th. Pre-order at Amazon or wherever books are sold. I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, America's doctor. And all across our nation, we've taken steps together to slow the spread of coronavirus. Now we must continue to take personal responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Because even though not all of us risk a severe case of coronavirus, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others, maybe without even realizing that we're sick. So if we want to get back to school, back to work, back to worship, and back to overall health, there are things our country needs to do. We need to follow state and local guidelines, take extra precautions if at higher risk, wash our hands frequently, stay six feet from others when we can, and when we can't stay six feet from others, please, I'm begging you, wear a face covering. These small actions will make a big difference. So I'm asking you to say it with me, America. Coronavirus stops with me. You can learn more at coronavirus.gov. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. This is the John Stacker Show on AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The answer. Well, the Pirates will be playing in front of nobody tonight at PNC Park, which is what they deserve because they stink. But even if they didn't, it would be empty because of COVID-19. I have a feeling that if the Pirates were playing in, say, I don't know, Rapid City, South Dakota, fans would be allowed to go because Rapid City is in South Dakota, where Christy Noem is the governor. I've been talking a lot about her and South Dakota for the last couple of months, so um, I wanted to get someone on the ground out there to tell us what it's like. That would be Mike Tanner. He's the news director at KWAT Radio in Watertown, South Dakota, and he joins us now. Mike, thanks for coming on. Hi, John. Good to talk to you. So uh, where is Watertown? I mean, I know it's in South Dakota, but uh, place it on the map for us. Yeah, Watertown, we're a city, John, of about 20,000 people, give or take a few hundred. We'd be located in the northeast corner of the state, right along Interstate 29, uh, which runs north and south right through town here. We're about uh, roughly 40 miles west of the Minnesota border and a little further than that south of the North Dakota border. So that probably gives you an idea of where we're at. So you're like us. You're in a tri-state. We call or we are the tri-state area, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. Um, yep, and uh, our tri-states would be the Dakotas and Minnesota here. Yeah. So um, the opening of the show, I mentioned the motorcycle rally in Sturgis that starts on Friday. Uh, how big of a deal is that, and how big of a deal is it that it's uh, being allowed to take place this year? Well, it's- It's a big deal. Uh, The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally every year draws hundreds of thousands of of bikers from all over the country, John, really all over the world. Uh, A few years ago, five years ago, in fact, when they had the 75th annual rally, that was the largest one up to that point, attendance-wise, that they'd ever had. This year is the 80th annual rally, and up until probably about the middle of June, there were questions about whether or not it would even be held because of the pandemic. 
mm-hmm. and Governor Nome, who you referenced, uh, she uh, left that decision up to the local folks, and the city council in Sturgis in June decided that the event would go on, although it's going to be a scaled-down version of what you'd see at a typical rally. Yeah, so uh, the, the number that I saw was 250,000 when it's normally closer to half a million. Exactly. And, and at 250,000, I've heard reports that that will be the largest public event held in this country since the pandemic started, you know, six months ago or whatever. Kind of ironic that in a smaller rural state like South Dakota, we're going to yeah. have, I guess, the honor or the distinction, whatever you want to call it, of holding the largest public event since the pandemic began. It'll be interesting. I've been singing the praises of your governor for several weeks now. Um, she's uh, made me seriously consider moving to South Dakota, actually, just because of the things I hear her say. But um, she's made me seriously consider that. But um, I saw a poll taken back in January, just a little while ago. I was looking through some stuff, and I was surprised to see that a poll taken in January showed more people disapproving of her performance as governor than approving. Now, that was before the pandemic. So has those, or do you think those numbers will have changed? I think they probably have. And frankly, I'm a little surprised by the numbers that you cited in that January poll. I'm not really sure what she did to, uh, to deserve those kind of poll numbers. I can tell you that You know, during this pandemic, she has uh, done what a lot of governors around the country have not done, and she's basically been hands-off, saying, Mm -hmm. I'm putting confidence in the people that elected me to make the decisions that are best for themselves and their family. She has not forced businesses to close. She has not mandated wearing masks. And... um, you know, that, that's not drawn universal support, even from the people within South Dakota. Not everybody agrees with that. But out here, I think we, we really uh, appreciate and value our personal freedoms. And, and right. she's given us a lot of freedom during the pandemic, that's for sure. Yeah, the, the thing I'm looking at here, I, I just called it up while you were talking. Um, and, and believe me, I was surprised. It's, a, it's the Sioux Falls Argus leader. And the the headline is more South Dakotans disapprove than approve of Christy Noem's job performance, um, and that was according to the Morning Consult's latest polling. Forty five percent of South Dakotans disapproved, uh, and forty three percent approved. So that's a that's pretty much a fifty fifty split there. But uh, yeah. I still was surprised, and I just wondered. That's why I asked if it if since all the things you just mentioned there that she's done that other governors haven't had the guts to do. Uh, if, if that would have, is that just playing well out there? Yeah, for the most part, I would say yes. We're largely a Republican state, John. Our three members of Congress are all Republicans. Every single one of our statewide office holders is a Republican. Our legislature has about an 80-20 split between Republicans and Democrats. So we're a very strong Republican state, and because of that, I think if you took a poll now and specifically related the question to how she has handled the pandemic, I think she would get more positive reviews than negative. Yeah, but uh, but is there a vocal, um, you know, you're a news director, and we're, and we're talking to Mike Tanner. He's news director at KWAT Radio in Watertown, South Dakota. Um, are You know, in your little town there, and in around, when you move around the state and look at the media around the state, is there a vocal opposition to what she's doing, and, and people uh, are there out there making noise about she should be being tougher and, and making people wear masks and do all the stupid things that they're doing, like right here where I am right now? There, there is some of that. Um, I would not say it's a large, organized, really, really vocal group that's doing that, but you do hear about it, of course. Um, most recently, when. We had President Trump in the state for the July, I guess it was July 3rd, fireworks show and speech that he gave out at Mount Rushmore. She received a lot of criticism for not requiring the attendees of that event to wear masks. And there was a lot of buzz about 
Um, the fact that because the president was coming and because masks weren't going to be mandatory, that we would see a spike in COVID-19 cases following that. Yeah. And it never happened. And, yeah, and, and I, it never happened. Yeah, that's what I thought. And I, I remember I, I heard, uh, saw a video of, of her talking about that before, before the event. She said, welcoming everybody to come. And she said, we won't be social distancing and masks are optional. We'll have them there for people who want them. But, you know, you're on your own. What a concept. Freedom. So uh, that yeah. was my – I've been, I've been tweeting about this and asking him, sort of just throwing it out there on the air. Uh, you know, where are all the dead bodies piling up from that uh, uh, rally that they had out there on July 3rd? Because I heard it was just the most dangerous thing they could do and, and uh, you know, it was uh, irresponsible. So it, there's no, no um, signs of any problems because of that? No big COVID spikes after that event, and there was not only concern, John, about the fact that there was not going to be mandatory uh, face mask wearing and social distancing at that event, but there was also a lot of talk that having a fireworks show out mm-hmm. in the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore would be irresponsible because that's very, very he- <coughs> me, heavy timber area. It's oh, like okay. forest land out there. And there was a lot of buzz that um, having a fireworks show out there was going to cause and create wildfires. And that didn't happen either. And, you know, because she has not come out as a vocal, strong proponent of face masks, mm-hmm. there's this misperception, I think. And, and I, in fact, I interviewed the governor yesterday and she talked about this. Um, there's this perception that she is anti-face mask wearing. Well, that's not the case at all. What she has said is, if you need to wear a face mask, if you think that is the best decision for you, go for it. But I'm not going to tell you that you have to do it. Again, it's the whole idea of personal responsibility and putting trust and faith in the people that elected her to the office. Now, now, you say you interviewed her yesterday. Um, how is she to deal with, we're talking about uh, Christy Noem, the governor of South Dakota, how is she to deal with and how is she treated by the media in general out there? Well, uh, by the local media, of course, we're a, we're a small rural state. We're a flyover state, as they say, and yeah. I don't think we take that personally out here because we know who we are and where we are. You're so lucky. I don't think she yeah, – <laughs> I don't think, John, she gets a ton of pressure – from the in-state media. She does take some heat from the national media, though, and she talked about that recently, about how she gets frustrated with uh, how the pandemic is being reported at times, not necessarily that we're not being given accurate information, we're just not being given all of the information. And I think she gets a little frustrated uh, by that. But you asked how she is to deal with. Uh, look, at she's a small-town South Dakota girl. She's from the, the northeast corner of the state here near Watertown. And um, this is home for her. She served for eight years in Congress uh, as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. And she came back to South Dakota because of self-imposed term limits. She said, I'm not going to serve any more than eight years in Washington. I want to come home to South Dakota, back home. And she did. And I can remember, it's been almost three years ago now, when she announced her uh, kickoff campaign uh, in running for governor. She did it at a small fishing and sporting goods store called Cones Corner. Uh, south of Watertown here, where she's from that area. And she talked about, uh, at that news conference, about her decision to run for, for governor. And she got very emotional when she was talking about why she wanted to come back to South Dakota. She has a deep love for this state and its people. And uh, she was happy to get out of D.C. There's been, you know, talk on social media, and there's been buzz that, gosh, I wish... President Trump would replace Mike Pence on the ticket with Christy Noem. And gosh, I hope Christy Noem runs for president in 2024. Well, unless you see 
uh, a complete 180 degree turn, that's not going to happen because everything she has said up to this point is, I like being in South Dakota and I like being governor. Yeah, and uh, that makes me like her even more that she had a self-imposed term limit. Boy, be nice if some other people, I mean, we have, well, there's some people in Washington that have been there 30, 40 years too long. Uh, not not just been there 30 or 40 years, but they've been there 30 or 40 years too long. And I'm talking about both parties. What a, what a refreshing thing for somebody to do. Um, so will most of the kids in, in South Dakota be going to school in person later this month? They will, although that's another decision, John, that, that she's um, she has not made any um, one-size-fits-all sort of decision by saying you're all going to learn in class, you're all going to learn at home on the computer. She's left that decision up to the local school boards, and she has not mandated wearing masks in school. Again, she's telling local school boards and students and parents, listen, if you want to wear a mask in school, that's fine. If you think that's best for you, go ahead and do it but I'm not going to tell you that you have to do that. I, I guess one of, the, one of the boldest decisions that she's made during this pandemic was very early on in the front end of it back in March when she and the governors of just about every other state in the country decided to end in-class learning. That was in March, and mm-hmm. students finished out the rest of the school year um, learning from home. But she's talked about the importance of getting those kids back in school, not only for academic reasons, but for social reasons, too. And she's talked about the fact that through this distance learning, there have been kids that um, that teachers just have had difficulty making contact with, and she, she just really feels that it's important to get the kids back in school. And I think the majority, well, I know that the majority of school districts here in South Dakota will have students back in the classroom when school begins later this month, although districts are telling parents um, if you have a a child with an underlying health condition or you just don't feel comfortable sending them back to school, we'll work something out. Okay, I have two minutes left here, Mike, and you're a radio guy, so I'm up against a hard break, but... um just a couple things quickly here. Um, what's the number of cases out there in your neck of the woods, in your county, your your town, however you want to break it down, uh, uh, where you are? Well, um, as of today, total number of cases in South Dakota since the pandemic began, and I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I can tell you that it's a little over 9,000 mm-hmm. uh, total cases since the pandemic began. The number of people who've tested positive and and have since recovered is running around 88%, I believe. Um, Deaths statewide are at 137. Uh, Here in the county that I'm in, uh, which is Watertown, is the county seat of Coddington County, we've had 20 total cases, or I should say we have had uh, 20 active cases as of right now. Total cases in the county have been running a little over 100. And here's something interesting, and it's one of the reasons, John, why Governor Nome didn't decide to mandate a statewide business closing. There's one county in South Dakota. It's way out in the northwest corner of the state. It's called Harding County. And, uh, I can assure you that there are more cattle out there than people. It's very sparsely populated. They have not had a single case of wow. COVID-19 since the pandemic began hey, in Mike. the entire county. So, Mike, I'm out go. of time uh, completely. I, I really appreciate you doing this. You made the mistake of doing it, and so I'm going to call you again when I need something from South Dakota. Thanks a lot. You've got my, you've got my number, buddy. It was good to talk to you. Thanks, and have a great day. That's Mike Tanner, KWAT Radio, Watertown, South Dakota. We'll be back. With SRN News, I'm John Scott. A campaign by airlines and their unions for federal money to keep paying airline workers is getting a boost. 
Sixteen Republican senators have endorsed a proposal to give airlines billions so they can avoid layoffs through next March. Chicago's mayor announcing that the nation's third largest school district will not welcome students back to the classroom after all and will instead rely on only remote instruction to start the school year. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says most people think the deadly explosion Tuesday in Lebanon that killed at least 100 people was an accident. Lebanese officials say a large stockpile of ammonium nitrate left over from a seizure exploded. At least one American was killed. Stocks climbing again on Wall Street. The Dow added 373 points today. The Nasdaq gained 57. This is SRN News. Do you wake up in the morning feeling tired like you haven't slept at all? Experience better quality sleep with drug-free RimFresh, the first and only continuous release and absorption melatonin that supports your natural sleep cycle for up to seven hours. With number one sleep doctor recommended RimFresh, get up to seven hours of sleep support. Available at Amazon and at fine retailers nationwide. Individual results may vary. Use is directed. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, save up to $500 on select Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds, plus special financing on all Smart Beds, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See Dan Proft doesn't understand the argument against shutting down the schools. The Centers for Disease Control's most recent report, 12 pediatric COVID deaths total compared to 174 pediatric flu deaths this season. In 2018-2019 flu season, there were 400 pediatric deaths. In the 2009 swine flu pandemic, 2,000 children died. 12 so far pediatric COVID-19 deaths in America, and we shut down the schools. The Dan Proft Show, weeknights at 9 at AM 1250, The Answer. This is Jay Hagerman of Abernathy and Hagerman. Upon your passing, you wouldn't want a judge to decide who raises your children or how your estate gets divided. It is important to review your estate planning documents to ensure they protect what matters most. At Abernathy and Hagerman, we will work with you to establish an estate plan that nominates a guardian for your minor children, and that your assets are used for your family's benefit. Judge for yourself. For legal help that lasts a lifetime, visit a-h.law. This radio station accepts political advertising. In fact, we are required to do so by the federal law. We understand that not all our listeners will agree with statements or positions taken by all of these candidates, and sometimes neither do we. But this radio station is an important part of this community, and therefore the candidates want to bring their message to you via our airwaves. We do so as a public service, and we are required to do so, regardless of your position on these issues. Please make sure you register to vote so your voice is heard. Relief factor, pain relief, it's natural pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just nineteen ninety-five. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The Answer. A division of Salem Media Group. Listen on The Answer mobile app, smart speakers, tune in iHeart or radio.com. Stuck in traffic? We've got the answer. On the inbound parkway, eased all stacked up from Wilkinsburg down to the Squirrel Hill Tunnel. Accident was cleared a while ago, but we're still just hanging on to a lot of delays there. Also busy outbound from Bates Street to the tunnel. That's about a five-minute delay. On the parkway west, looking pretty busy as well. Outbound as you approach Green Tree, an accident cleared there. In Etna, an accident, Bridge Street at Sycamore Street. That's a look at traffic. I'm Jenny Robinson. AM 1250, The Answer. Weather. Clear to partly cloudy for tonight, low 57. Tomorrow, clouds and sun with a passing afternoon shower, high 79. Thursday night, cloudy with showers, late low 61. Clouds and sun Friday, watch for a shower or thunderstorm around, high 79. 
partly sunny Saturday, high 84. With your AccuWeather forecast, I'm Andy Robb. Warning, listening to this program may expose you to toxic masculinity. The John Steigerwald Show on AM 1250, The Answer. I don't know about you, but I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, And if you spend too much time on Twitter, you begin to believe that Twitter represents reality, and it doesn't. And way too many people in the media probably spent way too much time on Twitter the last few years. Uh, Nikki Usher is a professor at the University of Illinois Media College, and she was part of a study that looked uh, looked at the Twitter habits of some of your favorite journalists. She joins us now. Nikki, thanks for being here. Happy to join you. So uh, let's just start with what what was the purpose of the study? What made you decide to focus on Twitter? Well, as as you, uh, an avowed Twitter user yourself, uh, know, journalists spend a lot of time on Twitter. And one of my concerns, especially in the wake of the 2016 election, was to try to really understand what was going on in the national political media, because... Uh, especially since I have been located in D.C., um, I saw that journalists tended to reinforce each other's beliefs and kind of get into sort of this really dangerous kind of groupthink. Um, mm-hmm. And dangerous in that, it, it, you know, checking your presumptions is pretty hard to do when your friends share your presumptions, right? It's why we want to have diverse social circles and all sorts of things like that. And on Twitter, that that sort of niche kind of bubbling situation is particularly profound, but if you're a national political journalist, these are insights you're using to shape your coverage that the whole country, if not world, is going to see. And so that's what really kind of motivated the research. Yeah, and um, but we'll get into who you, who you identified uh, to study, but, um, you know, what you said about journalists, it seems to me could be the same could be said about too many politicians who think Twitter is the real world. Would that be... Uh, I think certain politicians more so than others. Um, uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think any, you know, there's like a world of, you know, people who care a lot about astronomy who live in their own little bubble on Twitter, too. So these yeah. bubbles are present everywhere. The question is, what what's the potential harm? Right? A whole bunch of people talking about uh, intergalactic you know, waves, right, um, that's not causing a lot of harm to the way the public sees itself, right? So you, you identify... Go ahead, sorry. Sorry? There's no, more ahead, potential sorry. harm, right, of, of what happens when politicians and journalists start to see the world for smaller than it really is. Mm-hmm. You identified nine clusters. Uh, who are yeah. they, and how did you choose those clusters? Well, so one of the really interesting things about Twitter is you can kind of ask questions of the data in a way that you might almost interview somebody. So we can ask those same kinds of questions with tweets, right? And so we were kind of most curious, my, my, co- my co-author, uh, Ina and Margaret, and, uh, we were most interested in kind of trying to understand who within the Beltway bubble, who happened to talk to each other the most, because that could give us some insight into perhaps some of the contours of the coverage that we were seeing and have a better understanding of which journalists are setting up mutually reinforcing networks of, of conversation that, you know, makes it harder and harder to get outside the Beltway bubble as a whole. There was a smaller bubble. So what ended up surfacing was, first, there was just sort of this elite legacy bubble um, that was just sort of all of the name brand news outlets that, you know, NPR, New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, just the sort of names you kind of know and at least I trust, right? Um, so, so there was that, that, um, and then, uh, there was a TV producer bubble, which I think was pretty interesting because it suggested that one of the reasons that you tend to see, you turn on CNN, then you turn on MSNBC, then you turn on the nightly news and you see the same sort of face booked is because producers are paying attention to the same news and kind of trying to guess what other producers are, you know, who other producers are going to book, for instance. There are also a number of other little silos that exist around topical beats. So, like, the people who are super focused on covering Congress, for instance, and can tell you every single thing that is happening in Congress at that moment. Um, some of the trade press, uh, some of the foreign affairs people, right, foreign affairs 
foreign affairs is a very specialized, particular set of knowledge. And then one that was really encouraging to me, which was um, a long-form journalism cluster. So people who are writing big kind of takeout pieces, um, all kind of thinking through that stuff together. But mm-hmm. I think the, the kind of headline of all of this is the, the CNN cluster, which, I mean, you can ask me some more questions on this, but it really suggests that at least on Twitter, people on CNN are just tweeting and consuming and thinking about what is happening on CNN. <laughs> yeah, I, saw, I thought that was interesting. Of, of all the clusters that you uh, talked about, you did mention in your piece that um, uh, CNN, you, you, you focused on CNN and that they seem to talk to each other a lot. So yeah. that was unique, more unique to CNN? Yeah, I mean, CNN, all of these other clusters had, you know, different outlets popping out throughout, so you couldn't really say there was one outlet that really dominated. And the case of CNN and that particular network, and sub-network, was about almost 50% of all tweets within that network were to people to and within CNN. Now, there may be lots of reasons for that. It's probably organizational mandate that you tweet about CNN if you're using Twitter. They may have different communication that lives internally, like on Slack, where a lot of the other sorting out gets done. But what this suggests, to me at least, is there's some real concern that CNN has made itself the story. That, yeah, that's yeah. what that's my, my big takeaway is. And I think that you can see it if you look in there. There's a, a table in the paper, and you can see some of the most commonly uh, tweeted uh, mentions, right, or uh, hashtags and uh Acosta is in there, and it's probably because when this data set was collected, Jim Acosta was having that fight with Trump. And, like, so CNN journalists on Twitter are talking about, like, it's good promo, right? Like, it's good, it's good, it's good for CNN to show that they're this high level engaged with the president, but it's also, mm-hmm. like, deeply insular because I'm not sure everybody cares about Jim Acosta's fight with, with the president. Yeah, you, you talk about micro bubbles. Uh, do you think these yeah. people are aware that they're in micro bubbles? So I think that everybody in the Beltway knows that they're in the Beltway bubble, and I think that there's a real genuine effort to get outside of it. I don't know if people who are inside them would be able to necessarily describe them with the level of specificity that I, I was able to through social science and data analytics. Um, but I do think there's a real, people do have a sense of humility. They know. It's just when you're working as hard as we all work, especially now, it's hard to see, it's hard to make time to think outside of your network of sources, people you trust, people who help you think through things, right? So there's, I think that it's a challenge we all face in all of our jobs. I just think the consequences of it are much greater when you're making national political journalism. Yeah, and you describe uh, Twitter as a, a virtual water cooler. Um, yeah, is is that a good thing? I mean, I'm talking about for the people who are the the um, the the people who are are uh, the consumers of this journalism that's being produced. Well, I think one of the things that that's really cool for somebody who's interested in journalism is if you follow, you know, all, if you were to go and follow all of the political journalists that you watch on TV and read in whatever news outlets you read and just paid attention to what they were saying on Twitter all day, your lens of how journalism gets made, how the stories get discussed, how agendas are set, is so much richer. Everything is actually so much more transparent because journalists are thinking out loud on mm-hmm. Twitter. Our president is also thinking out loud on Twitter, right? Um, so so it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're kind of given an ear to a conversation that you would have otherwise had to have been on a campaign campaign bus here, for instance. And I think that's pretty cool for the news consumer. Uh, we're talking to uh, Nikki Usher. She's a uh, professor, University of Illinois uh, College of Media. Um, and um, what do you what do you find from your students and their dependence on Twitter? Too much? Not enough? About right? Uh... I think that students know what social media they want to use for what purpose. Twitter is not the one they spend most of their time on unless they're heavily engaged in activism. Usually it's Instagram, um, TikTok, but that's probably not their first platform of choice. Yeah, and and is is Twitter um, overall, based on your study, and by the way, uh, first I noticed this is not a small sample. There were 2,015 journalists 
and 133,539 tweets. Um, that's a lot. That's a that's a good sample size, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, basically what we did is we took the congressional directory list of credentialed congressional correspondence, which is basically if you're going to do anything in D.C., you need to be credentialed for Congress. And we used that as our baseline list and then figured out all of the journalists that actually had active Twitter accounts and then sampled from that. So it really is a good representation of people who live, who are journalists, who live and work in the Beltway. Yeah. So... So overall, is Twitter a good thing for journalists? <laughs> ah, I mean, right? It's it's how journalists use it, right? Everything, all of these tools are just as good as how we use them. And I think that um, journalists need to be really aware of the benefits and the limitations of using any platform, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, or the telephone. And um, what what else uh, um, did you find that maybe I haven't asked you here so far? Is this something that jumped out at you that I haven't covered here uh, on the study that you'd like to talk well, about? Yeah, I mean, I think for for your listeners, um, uh, they might be interested to hear that uh, Fox was in the mix with ABC and CBS in terms of that producer bubble I was talking about. Yeah. So um, we, while we tend to sort of think that Fox lives in some, like, alternate universe. The reality is that Beltway Media is Beltway Media, and mm-hmm. everybody wants to book the good guests. And I think that if you look at, at that bubble, that's, that, 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 that layer of the research, that's what that tells you. So I think that would probably be interesting for, for your listeners to know. Yeah, and so so how do you how do you think that affects what we see on Fox or what we see on the other uh, places that you mentioned? I mean, how much? I mean, <laughs> Go ahead. I, I really just think that you know, on the day to day level, a lot of news looks the same, right? And maybe it's being presented by somebody different, but uh, in terms of sort of the story of the day, you can see how the story of the day is the story of the day because you have all these people in Washington who are covering the same thing, right? And yeah. so it's going to be the story of the day everywhere. Most, and so I think that, you know, I think the, the thing that a lot of people don't really understand, and, and you obviously understand this, but just for your listeners, it's not like journalists are sitting in a dark room thinking up some crazy conspiracy of like, this is going to be the news today. And yeah. Instead, the new, something happens, and journalists try to make sense of it. Now, in the Twitter era, they try to make sense of it on Twitter. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of similarity across the basic sort of what happened today. People will say that it means different things, but mm-hmm. um, I think that's what this study maybe brings back home. Yeah, and... Um you know, one of the things I think, one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have, and I think you have to have worked in the media to really understand this or to, to have studied it, as you have, um, that when you're talking about bias, bias is as much about what you choose to cover and what you choose not to cover as it is how you cover what you choose to cover. And so were you able to, based on looking at Twitter, see any trends that, you know, based on their Twitter uh, use, what they find uh, worthy of showing up on their air? Well, I think that we didn't look specifically at how the tweets then translated into coverage, which would be an important next step. So just because you're talking about something all day doesn't mean that you're going to then go write up that story, right, or or Uh produce that story. So that's one thing. It just kind of, what this study does is it gives you a snapshot about how journalists are thinking and talking and reasoning with each other. Um, and so, I mean, I, t- I tend to worry a little bit about the use of the word bias because I think it, it presumes an intention. And I think that probably if my study has anything to contribute, it's that this isn't intentional. This is just how people try to make sense of very confusing things that are happening in the world. And they do so by relying on people who can best help them make sense of it, which in this case, is the other journalist who is covering the, you know, housing bill in Congress? And I well, think that's, I know that's you're one a, you're way a, to think about it. 
you're a journalism and media professor and not a political science professor, but just to finish up here, do you think you might find similar things uh, if you if you focused on the politicians themselves instead of the media who cover them? It's a good question. I think that politicians have a different strategic game, right? The politicians have a huge, and I've written about this elsewhere, but politicians have a huge advantage in the Twitter era because they can say something and then it gets distributed immediately to the public. And so journalists are always playing catch-up as a result. And so I think that you might find, I'm not sure what you would find, because it also depends on, are you looking at the president? Are you looking at a senator? Are you looking at a state legislator? Are you looking at yeah. a mayor? Right. So I think it's, it's, it's a great next question. Um, but I do think it's really important. Maybe to, the big difference that politicians have now is the ability to directly go to the people immediately without having a journalist gatekeeper. Well, hey, Nikki, I really appreciate you being on. I, I think the study is really, uh, really interesting, and I think it's also something that should be good for students. I, I know you're a teacher, so um, what, were your, what are you hoping the students learn from this? Well, you know, I actually showed my students some of the early data to see what they thought. Like, they kind of actually helped me reason through some of this. So, um, you know, I think that I think a lot more about what journalists do and what politicians do than they do because they're students who would rather have fun and watch football um, right. and enjoy campus, uh, which I love about them. Um, but I think the big takeaway is to be really aware of how the social media platforms you use shape the views you have and that you have control over that, right? If you if you feel like Facebook's making you angry, don't use Facebook or change the way you're using it. And I think that's like the empowering thing I'm trying to, I teach a social media class and the main thing that I'm going to teach my students is that you shape how you use this device just as this device shapes you, right? How is this technology, is this platform? So that's hey, probably a really important takeaway. Hey, Nikki, I'm out of time. I really appreciate you being on. Yeah. Thanks, and I'll be following you. you on Twitter. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Uncle Tom is a movie that leftist Democrats don't want you to see, which, of course, is one big reason why you should want to see it. Uh, Uncle Tom stars Larry Elder, Candace Owens, Herman Cain, and Brandon Tatum. Now, they all share three things in common. They're courageous, they had a life-changing experience, and they are black conservative Americans. Something else they have in common? Their voices are the ones the leftists don't want you to hear at a time when so many desperately need to hear it. It's their stories of how their lives were changed when they finally figured out the truth. It's the story of black conservatives in their own voice. You can see Uncle Tom now on pay-per-view. Just go to UncleTom.com and download it. The stories that these courageous people have to tell will shock you. Their journey will amaze you. It's a story of redemption and hope. It's the story of America's black conservatives, and it's the truth. See Uncle Tom now. Just go to UncleTom.com. Dance like a dad. It's a great way to make a moment with your kids. First, I hold my hands out like they're on a steering wheel. Then I look over my shoulder. Next, oh, I put it in reverse. Me, me, me. Visit Fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hey, John Stoggerwald here. I'm just here to tell you how much I love my pillow and how it's changed my sleep. Check out the new mattress topper. That's really amazing. Now, I don't know if I love my pillow or the My Pillow mattress topper more. Get a My Pillow mattress topper and get some of the best sleep of your life. Now it comes with a 10-year warranty and a cover that's washable and dryable. And it's made in the USA and backed with Mike Lindell's 60-day money back guarantee. Just go to mypillow.com. And save 30%. Use promo code STAG or call 800-716-8087. When you do, Mike gives you two standard MyPillows free. That's MyPillow.com, promo code STAG, or call 800-716-8087. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit MyPillow.com. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, The Answer. 
Famines of biblical proportions, the coronavirus has upended the global economy and supply chains with nations under lockdown. So what does it mean for food supplies? The COVID-19 pandemic is having a devastating effect all around the world, and not just in terms of the illness. It's also creating widespread food shortages. An estimated 135 million people face starvation, and that could double to 265 million by the end of the year. In many countries, families that are already hungry will soon be facing starvation and famine. Marcus Frisch is Projects Director with Food for the Poor. We work with the poorest of the poor, and we also work with those who don't have the ability on a normal day to be able to provide adequately for their family. So when a government tells them that they must quarantine for a month, that means widespread famine. That means widespread starvation because these people are living day to day. So uh, I want to make sure you understand what we're doing here with uh, Food for the Poor. We've done it here on the show before. Uh, we raised money for uh, people in Haiti through Food for the Poor, and uh, this is uh, uh, another campaign, but it's much different because of the COVID-19, and things are much worse, as you just heard on that little message right there. So um, the best thing about Food for the Poor, the campaign, is that you know exactly what your money that you uh, give gets. Uh, for example, $37 gift will provide emergency food relief for a child for six months. Six months a kid can eat on 37 bucks. $185 gift, that's a emergency food relief for five kids for six months. $185 and six months uh, for five kids. And then $370 one time, you send $370, and that's emergency food relief for 10 kids for six months. That's a lot of eating for 10 kids for six months. And the way you donate is call 844-868-HOPE. That's 844-868-4673. 844-868-4673. Or go to uh, uh, the website, theanswerpgh.com. That's theanswerpgh.com. And click on the red emergency food relief uh, button, and you can uh, donate money that way. But uh, the number again is 844 844- And I hope you uh, do that, and we'll be talking to you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Bye. The John Steigerwald Show is a production of the Answer Pittsburgh and Salem Media Group.